The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Go. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. I'm Eric, this is Gary, happy to have you back. Uh, if this is your first time checking us out, we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. You can check us out at snn.network. You can also check us out at the SNN YouTube channel, that's youtube.com slash snnwire. Super excited about the episode today. We have a really special guest for you. Um, it's a personal friend of ours, someone that we've known for many years. We've been involved in a lot of stories together. So when I have a tremendous amount of respect for Gary, why don't you sit up a little bit? Pretend I like, gotta, I gotta sit up and pay pretend more, like pay, you're interested. Pay more respects to uh, uh, Eric Nelson. Thank you very much for for joining us. Um, of Abe Capital, right? There you go. Thank you, thank you guys for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's nice to see your faces too. Um, yeah, likewise. Yeah, we're both, we're all in New Jersey, but I think this is the first time we've seen each other in six to nine months. I, I forget how long it's been. We're probably on the phone. What about four or five days a week? Probably three, but you know, I'm not the most uh, technologically uh, forward person. So, you know, for, for this type of podcast and venue, I'm happy to show my face, but normally I'm just kind of a pick up the telephone kind of guy. But, you know, thank you guys yeah, for having yeah. me. Pleasure. I, I can always tell when it's earnings season because I hear from you a little bit more often. Uh, so, just so um, you don't have a lot of a, a, a very big public persona. So, just you know, Eric mentioned you're somebody you have a lot of respect for. You're also somebody that I have a lot of respect for. You do a lot of really deep work. Um, you, 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 you lap both of us in, in terms of the <laughs> firepower behind the ideas that uh, that goes into it and also the scuttlebutt. So uh, we, we tip, I tip my cap to you and uh, just ask you to sort of to give us a little bit about your background and yourself and your firm. Before I digress, as you know, sometimes you can have a lot of firepower, but if it's shooting in the wrong direction, it doesn't often help. Um, but thank you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, Eric Nelson, I founded uh, Abe Capital Management about 10 years ago. I've been privately managing a little bit of money before that. And um, I have a legal background, but never practiced a day in my life. So sometimes I'm happy to read an SEC filing where sometimes people don't necessarily want to do that. Um, when I set up my firm, I thought there was kind of a need to try to, if you want to try to make people long-term investors and you're buying often individual securities. And, and sometimes I will do index related stuff and ETF like stuff. But my core focus is often these smaller nichier value situations, often with like a family owned family controlled um, dynamic, not exclusively, but you know, sometimes that's the case. And, you know, it's one thing I think if you're buying Amazon for people or you're buying uh, Apple or Procter and Gamble, people are very, very familiar with those companies if you lose money to them, people, their general response is, all right, well, it was Procter & Gamble, it was Amazon, whatever. Um, if you're buying tiny company ABC or something that's very off radar, um, sometimes people will say, what's wrong with Eric? So I at least tend to want to do a write-up for the vast majority or a lot of my positions so that clients have an understanding of, this is my thinking going into it, this is the research that we did, and, you know, better right, better wrong. And then sometimes you actually will get, and, and I tend to just distribute it to clients and, then, you know, some friends, whether I'm collaborating with them or just think it might be interesting for them to take a look, I'm looking for feedback. 
But sometimes you will get clients who will call you up and have either industry experience or litigated against the company before or have some sort of interesting insight for you. And you're, you know, and and that sometimes can be valuable. I mean, it can also be a little bit of a red herring sometimes because as we'll get into, everyone comes with their own biases and their own opinions on things. Um, But, you know, it's, it's better than not. And often, you know, I, if you lose money in something, it's better to explain why you did it on the front end to the extent possible you can. So you're doing something that's especially if you size a position decently well. Right. Well, your, your, your strategy I would describe as, as just unconventional. And so there's there's the line about failing conventionally versus unconventionally, and you'd much rather fail conventionally than unconventionally. Now, you're not a guy that, in my experience, in my experience knowing you, there's not all, I mean, you've had, you've taken your lumps over time, but there's been more hits than misses from from what I, what I've seen in my experience dealing with you. So um, I'm sure you've banked a lot of goodwill with folks along the way. Um, let's see. So you, you are, and when we interact on ideas, we've interacted on a lot of different ideas and shared ideas in the, in the past. Um, one of the things I think you're like way better at than I am is just the scuttlebutt. And can you talk to me just a little bit about how you go about the scuttlebutt? Yeah. Um, you know, I've always been a believer that if you're a buyer, there's someone selling it to you. If you're a seller, there's someone buying it from you. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, what do they know that I don't know? Right. Is, is there something that I'm missing, something that I don't understand? So my goal is basically to always try to figure out what things I can get wrong. What things do I miss ahead of time? And there's part of a process on an investment research process where, you know, uh, you might... It, my view sometimes on, uh, so companies have their usually, a lot of, a lot of actually companies I follow don't, but a lot of companies, you know, will have a quarterly call, right? And on there, there's a transcript. And what I've kind of come to believe over time is it often isn't what's said, it's often what's not said on those calls that's most meaningful. So sometimes I'll go through and I'll read, you know, basically one quarter and then I'll read the next year when they're doing comps, you look at the differential and say, all right, they said they beat this year versus last year, but then they, when you go a year forward, do they actually like reflect on why they did well the year before? You know, how much are they shifting or moving the narrative? And, um, and then also going through an annual report, right? Looking at the different footnotes and noticing things. Um, you know, one of the, the, the bigger wins I've had in the last few years, I won't get into the details of it, but basically I was reading a footnote. It was a family-owned, family-controlled business, very, um, very illiquid, wasn't trading very much. But I read a footnote in the filings in their annual report which said due to the passing of the last living beneficiary of it of the family trust all of the um kind of family controlled shares were going to be going into the family foundation and you know you guys are you know on on a financial advisory side i'm kind of in that world too and you know there are rules around foundations and they have to pay us they have to have certain types of distributions and this was a fairly illiquid situation and then I started to do some groundwork just on, and so how do you, let's say, sell 5%, if you only pay a 1% dividend, how do you sell 4% of the principal on a, let's say, 30%? There just wasn't the, there wasn't the buyer base for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as I was doing a little bit of more work on it, you kind of start to pick out that the family was going to have to do something. And then you started to actually, I mean, I was literally going on and trying to find their Facebook pages, right? I was like going to like, you know, trying to find out like, okay, what type of people are they? What drives them? What are their incentives? And sometimes you can find things on stuff like Facebook or LinkedIn. And yep. you know, one, one of the funnier ones is this family um, 
one of the two principals was probably by my estimates worth a billion dollars, maybe more. And he had a post on Facebook where he was really excited about getting like a Chevy Silverado. And I'm not a car person. I have no idea what a Chevy Silverado is, but it, it can't be that meaningful like to someone who has probably a billion dollars of, of savings at least, right? And it kind of gave me a little sense of who they were and they had kind of like, you know, a little bit down to earth kind of grassroots. Um, but you know, those are kind of some of the little things I'll do. One of the other weird personal habits that I have, which a lot of my friends make fun of me for, is when I get onto an airplane, I'll often, I mean, in this environment, I'm not really flying much anyway. And if I would, I wouldn't do this. But in prior times, if I would get on an airplane, I would often choose the middle seat. And you're like, well, why would anyone choose the middle seat on an airplane? That's the worst seat. Now, first of all, I don't really care about the aisle or the window. So I'm kind of indifferent. I'm a little under six feet tall. It's not like I'm six foot eight. Um, but what's interesting is you have twice the odds of meeting someone interesting and someone that, you know, in my, my world, right. I know a lot of lawyers, I know a lot of finance people, but you know, sometimes when you get on an airplane, it's totally random who you're sitting next to. And I've met some of the most interesting people sitting on airplanes and you literally can have three to four hour conversations or six hour conversations. And, you know, frankly, sometimes people don't want to talk to you on an airplane and you have to grasp those cues, but you know, I'll connect with that person after the flight. And I guess to lead into um, one of the things that we could talk about, the company has some cinema assets. And on one of my flights, I ended up sitting next to a guy who was getting training from AMC. He ran a series of cinemas in the, in the Midwest. And um, he was getting training on the transition from 35 millimeter to digital projection. And right. so I was able, after meeting him, to call him up and spent a couple of hours on the phone with him multiple times, understanding the implications for, you know, the number of employees who would have to have all, all these different things in terms of like technology and how it could be run. And, you know, sometimes you just meet a nice person on an airplane. So, you know, <laughs> you, know you never really know where things go and I'm a friendly person. So, you know, why not? What's the worst thing that can happen? You know, yeah. you're a little more squished. Yeah, it sounds like you're just willing to put yourself out there and pull on a few threads and kind of see what 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 happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I've gotten more and more like that over time. I was always, um, a lot of people in this business I find are fairly introverted, but I feel like the better ones could have figure out how to leverage, overcome that fear to have a little bit of extroversion for the right things. And I don't know if you're introverted in the same way that I am, but uh, if, uh, that that's something I had to overcome. Well, I mean. I that's how I originally, that's how we met. We met at Anthony's party. I mean, it's a party full of, I don't know how many lawyers he has there. None of them, maybe a few of them, securities lawyers. I think you and I were the only two kind of advisors slash investors there. And I don't know how you teased it out of me, but I think I found out you, 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 you went through the Columbia Business School program, the value investing program. And uh, I think we started talking about Greenbrick at the time because they were doing that big rights offering. And I just kind of happened organically and you extracted it out of me and, it, <laughs> and look where and now we're here. So yeah. Bunch of stock you, never know what, you never know what you'll find out if you ask questions. Right. That's right. So I guess, um, you know, the whole point of this podcast is we're trying to meet smart people. We already know you and we know you're a smart guy, but what we're trying to do is, is learn from smart people and their experiences and, and, and sort of, Oh, they say that success is a bad teacher. So oftentimes we're learning for thing, from things that maybe didn't work out so well, but it doesn't really matter necessarily. We haven't talked about what you're gonna talk about. So I have no idea what you're gonna, what, what, what it is that you were gonna talk about. We, but we gave you the basic premise. What, 
you've been involved in a lot of things over the years. What what do you what what what, what situation would you be interested in sharing with us? Uh, there are, there are, there are a couple of different ones. I'll share like two or three quick little anecdotes that I thought might be useful to anyone viewing um, from my own personal experience. Um, and then we can get maybe into the meat of something that's been a little bit more complicated and probably the bane of my existence for the last number of months. So, sure. All uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I, so um, around uh, 19, 1998-1999, I went to undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was in the uh, computer lab. Of, and I mean, they did have computers back then for anyone younger who's, who's watching. Uh, I was in the computer lab and I was talking to a friend of mine. And uh, we, we talk actually a little bit about investments. You know, that was the late 90s where, you know, people, there are elements today that you might see in terms of like Robinhood and day trading and stuff like that. This, that era had some similarities. Um, and one of the guys that I knew on campus would, did some really interesting research, not really in that area. And he said to me, he's like, you know, you should think about buying some shares of Aubon Pan. Sorry, I apologize for my lack of French, but uh, for most people who know, it's a uh, it's kind of like a pastry shop, effectively. And you know, I asked him why, and so it turned out in St. Louis, um, right by campus, there were these two stores. One was really a store, and one was almost like a like a like a little storefront uh, for a company called St. Louis Bread Company. And St. Louis Bread Company, uh, they only had three of them, but it turned out it was a subsidiary of Aubon Pan. And what was so interesting about it is I had friends who worked there. I knew how basically how profitable they were. I knew how popular they were among students. I knew it was a differentiated product. And Aubon Pan, which was a struggling company at the parent level, was basically looking to take this tiny, tiny little thing, which was almost like a, a local jewel, and take it national. Mm. And so I said, I'm like, all right, like this makes perfect sense. So I put in some sort of a bid and I want to say it was like five. And this is when things were still trading in eighths and quarters. So right now everything is a decimal point, but back then it was still a five and an eighth. Five. And I think I put in some sort of a bid with, it was a very, very small, I mean, I'm a college student, it was a very small amount of money, but it was for something like five and three eighths. And I want to say by memory, it never got there. It got the five and five eighths or five and three eighths, whatever it was, never took. And ultimately St. Louis Bread Company became Panera. <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've heard stories of friends from school who basically had their tuition paid off by making that bet. Wow. I, I don't know if that's technically true, but you know, it's at least how the rumors go. And, um, you know, there's a quote, if you, you know, a lot of people from Columbia Business School are big, you know, Buffett followers and Graham and Dodd and that thing. Um, but there's also a guy named Phil Fisher, who was probably, you know, a, his son, maybe Ken Fisher is probably better known today for Fisher Investments. But Phil Fisher was just like kind of a pretty legendary investor, wrote a great book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, because mm -hmm. the title. And he had a line in there that says, don't quibble over eighths and quarters. And I think if you have a good idea, like, and you're planning on this, I mean, I wasn't buying it for the next, you know, no one knew, but it was going to take a while for this to play out, even assuming it did. Um, I would have, you know, missing it by a quarter, you know, 3%, 5%, it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. But you try to get the best price you can, and maybe it was a little bit of a naivete. On the flip side, I think, and, and kind of um, along those lines, um, in 2011, the European kind of banking system was kind of on the fritz. People weren't sure how Germany was going to treat, you know, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Greece, et cetera. And 
you know, you're trying to figure, all right, is there a way to kind of play this where it's lower, kind of a lower risk, but you have some optionality of things getting better. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one thing I decided to look at was Berkshire Hathaway, which is, again, a lot bigger of a company that I would normally pay attention to. But Berkshire at the time was trading, I think, just over book value. And I thought I was doing a little work on the housing market. And they have kind of a number of businesses that are kind of cyclically tied to the housing market. And so, you know, and then I thought, well, if Europe really does have issues, I would imagine like what happened in 08 and 09, where Warren can kind of step in and get great deals, basically backstopping different financial institutions. I think he did it with Goldman and B of A in the past cycle. Right. I put on a, I put on a, a small position and, you know, without getting into details, it, it worked out okay. While I was, but the office I was working in was 61 Broadway. It was downtown in the financial district. A friend of mine um, from business school who had left the value investing program after he left and started up a hedge fund, he had like another desk next to him. And we got our office space from these like floor traders. Mm -hmm. um, and upstairs in the floor trading office, there was a guy who kind of sat in the back. He was like, like an emeritus kind of status. I'm sure he did real work, but he was just such an interesting store of value. His dad, I believe, was the market maker in U.S. Steel in 29. And he had spent 40 or 50 years on the floor of like the NYSE. So, and he would write like historical journal in historical journals and stuff like that. And, you know, a year or two passed and the investment was going fine, but um, I ended up, it was trading at a little higher price to book value. And I said, all right, I'm just going to sell my position. And I, I told him afterwards that I did it. And he said something to me that's always stuck. He said, nobody ever made money selling Berkshire Hathaway. And, you know, you take a step back on that and, you know, sometimes that's part of the challenge. How do you know when to let a good company run, even if it gets a little bit overvalued? Um, can you just hold it and just, you know, it'll, it'll work its way back. Or do you trim back a position a little bit for, for sizing purposes? But I, in retrospect, it was a, quite a big mistake because I thought, all right, it hit some sort of a price target. I'm just going to exit and move on. Yeah. And, you know. So how has that reshaped your thinking now? I mean, it's obviously stuck with you. How is that? carry forward and how does it carry through your portfolio today uh, or your process? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think it's basically just something that's always there in your back of your mind. You have a good, you have an investment that you think makes sense. Um, and there's sometimes it's easy just to peel off and, and walk away. And sometimes in the story we can get into in a minute, you probably would have been much better doing it. But often if you think you're right and you think the value is there over the long term. There's just, there's no need, right? There's no need to necessarily um, walk away on a, on, on a great business. So, I think you know. it's especially like if it's compounding in value over time, you know, Twitter has all these compounder bros out there. And I, I, some of the things I say, I understand some of the things I, I, I have less to understand, but like, you know, if it's, you got something that's growing at mid teens, it's 20% overvalued or 30% over whatever it is, like time will largely take care of that as long as that's what's going on, right? And I think that's I think that's the point that you're making with the Berkshire thing is Warren, Warren is the one of the ultimate compounder bros. He's the OG of compounder bros. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I, we've had the same experience. I don't know if he's ever been called an OG before, but I like it. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going to get some guns. Apparently there's guns that you could buy that you could stack with dollar bills and you could just shoot dollars in the air. I think we're going to get one of some of those for the for this podcast. We can make it more. Uh, Are we at that? No, I don't know. We'll ask producer Bobby if that's. Producer. Um, 
Yeah, we, we have the same experience and the same trouble with stuff is like, like I tend to be most permissive. Uh, I've learned to be pretty permissive on valuation, at least once you own something. I, I mean, it's, I guess sometimes it's just like, what else are you going to do with the money also, right? And how do you think about that? Is, is, is like, is it burning a hole in your pocket or is it just going to sit there? You know, like that's the other yeah. question. I don't and, know how I mean, you- It also goes a little bit to both the behavioral bias. I mean, there's, there's the other side of it, right? I was alluding earlier before about the behavioral bias of doing work on something and then being willing to walk away if let's say it goes up in price or doesn't go up, you know, like there's that ability of I've already uh, spent my time. I've spent my energy to ramp up and replace it also is can be, you know, time intensive and demanding. But I, I think there's, there's probably a balance there. Right. Um, I remember um, having an early 2011, I, the only, actually the only other thing I've ever done, this will, I guess be public, but the only other thing I'd ever done publicly is I had a friend who was kind of running a kind of an early blog and they asked me if I would make a con- contribution to it. And I said, well, I don't, I want to talk about something that's a little bit more macro and I don't want to lay out what I think, but I kind of want to write about both sides. And at the time there was a kind of a well-aligned piece for me to write because I had been involved in a position in gold mm-hmm. and I kind of looked at it. I, I don't know if it's, you know, a, a timeless thing that societies and cultures that didn't even know each other, you know, worshiped and valued, or if it's a yellow rock, like I don't really have a strong view on it. And at the time, because it had worked, I had actually been materially selling down the position, but I was still an owner and I still planned on kind of owning it. Um, And what was interesting is when I disseminated this piece of research publicly, I got a good amount of feedback. And, um, you know, the people who were bullish took away from my writing that I was bullish. And the people who were bearish took away from my writing that I was bearish. And I was neither bullish nor bearish. I was basically a seller on more behavioral things. I think it's almost impossible to value in a lot of ways, but it was behaviorally just kind of a little overlove for me and it became too big from a portfolio perspective. So I was kind of taking down the position and selling it off, but I probably wasn't ever going to go to zero on it either because I understood that there was some you know, longer term reason to keep it in the portfolio effectively, you know, from a diversification perspective. Let's, let's talk about one more thing before we transition to a story, because we mentioned the long write-ups that you do. And I think over time, I think Eric and I, we've been sort of, I've been a lot more careful about how I talk about and share things that I'm actively involved in um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, but one of them, uh, you know, you mentioned sort of a version of sunk cost fallacy where you know you put all this time into doing a write-up and like you don't want to walk away from it you've done it you've owned a position now you know you're getting this feedback how do you balance you can sort of become i don't know defender of the idea and how do you how do you how do you balance that aspect of things alongside of it because i'm sure that you get a fair amount for your work is very good and very detailed i'm sure you get a lot of praise but i'm sure you get pushback as well and so how do you how do you think about that and deal with that? Because we try to be quite a bit less specific publicly about the things that we're actively involved in. But you, but you at least with your clients and, and your investors um, are, are not. So I'm, I'd be curious how how you how you think about that. It's it's hard. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, the, the pros and the cons to it. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with is, you know, a number of the people whom I share my research with, whether clients or otherwise, are buy siders and they often have you know, strong opinions on things. And they have maybe people at their funds who are better at certain things than I am. And there were, there have been a number of positions where I thought I was right. I thought I did a tremendous amount of work. Yet, 
when the volatility wasn't working in my direction. And I had friends that I thought either were smarter or maybe their colleagues who I didn't even know were smarter on idea. I actually got shook out of the position because it becomes very hard in that I'm, so one thing I benefit from a little bit behaviorally is I emotionally like to sell more than I like to buy. So I think there are a lot of people who like to buy something. I actually get like some endorphins when I sell a position. It's like, I don't know if endorphins is the right medical term. I, I might get wrong, but you, you know what I'm talking about. The same thing that dopamine, like dopamine hits. Yeah, exactly. Um, I kind of um, almost like selling in a weird way more than buying. So, and, and, and so from my perspective, I don't really have a problem getting out, but I think part of my struggles is actually, in most cases, is actually staying in the position, pulling the, what I said I should have done with the Berkshire Hathaway, where yeah. I put on the position, I knew it, and not letting, you know, either short-term volatility in something, because I'm not looking at something for a three-month trade or a six-month trade. I have usually, you're not going to write a 20-page write-up because you think something's going to work in the next three weeks, right? right? I mean, it's not worth your time or energy. Um, but I do find that I actually um, have that as a little bit of a trouble. And I, I try to balance it. You know, I'll sometimes then go to like a third friend, right? Who doesn't really know the situation, doesn't have the bias. I'll be like, this is what I'm thinking about this. Do I sound rational to you? Right? Just testing your own rationality against friends who are not involved, who don't bring biases to the table. Um, you know, it, it's useful. It's very useful. Um, but, you know, there's, there's two sides. I mean, the, the company that I was kind of planning on talking into in details, you can have something that works really well for you. And then you can have a position that works well for a while and then works really poorly for you. And, you know, I, recently, I was recently talking to a very, very smart investor I know who was trying to encourage me to stick with the situation I'm about to describe. And I really, I, I speak with this person probably about once a month. And I, and I think incredibly highly of him and the questions he asks but one thing he said to me actually stuck with me, and I don't know if it's in a good way or a bad way. Um, in this situation, he said, you probably know this situation better than anyone else, right? And sometimes just because you know something better than other people and you know there's value there, doesn't mean you should stick along for the ride or doesn't mean you should double down. There is that whole concept of a potential value trap in different ways. If you can't, if you don't think the people who are managing the business are going to make the right decisions, and you're, you can't do much about it, or you don't think you can do much about it, or trying to do something about it is just ultimately not worth your time or energy. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, to, to me, that's a, um, you know, that's stuck with me in this situation. Um, kind of walk you through it if it's, if it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please yeah. Do. So um, it was around 2011. I had a good friend um, who was from Australia originally. And uh, lived in the U.S., worked for a New York-based hedge fund. He was a private equity guy, I think, by background. And he said to me, he's like, there's this interesting company. It's called Reading International. Um, there's voting shares and non-voting shares. It's controlled by this one guy. He doesn't really care much for outside shareholders, but he's a very, very thoughtful. He's a very good allocator of capital and a smart guy. And I think the assets and the businesses are worth a lot more than where it's trading at. And at the time, so the company, just breaking it down, has kind of um, a cinema business, which basically is where they generated cash flow. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of their business, they had basically real estate, which for the most part wasn't cash generating, but was in very, very good locations and often very large piece of property. The types of stuff that 
you know, a large private equity firm would probably drool over the holdings, but wasn't showing up in the business. And um, what was interesting is when I was buying shares initially, and I'd done a bunch of work on it. My office mate at the time was also involved. So he also, and he wasn't the Australian fellow I was referring to. He also was involved. So I had different people I was collaborating with. Um, and I initially bought shares. And that same day, a fellow named Mark Cuban actually filed a 13G saying he was selling shares. And, you know, remember that line I mentioned earlier, right? About like knowing who you're, you know, if you're a buyer, someone's a seller and what do they know? And he also, he ran landmark theaters, right? He knew the cinema industry well. He was in the voting shares outside of the family. He was the largest voting share owner. I don't think he was selling those. But you kind of, um, you know, you take a step back and you ask yourself, well, what does Mark Cuban know about this that I don't know? And for a while, I will tell you, I kept my position very, very small because of that. Now, it turned out he was selling other things in the general industry, which is both disconcerting and also made me feel better that it maybe wasn't company specific. Right, right. Um, and so for the first few years, actually, things were going interestingly well. One of the, and, and getting, getting, oh, go for it. Can I ask a question? Just the, uh, the Cubes' stake, was it um, sort of large in relation to his net worth or was it sort of not meaningful? Not, not meaningful. Not meaningful. Uh, yeah, at, at the time to get a little bit more into the weeds, um, the company probably had about a two hundred million dollar market cap with maybe a hundred. Uh, no, let me take that back. It had about a hundred million dollar market cap with about maybe two hundred million dollars of net debt. But as an example of assets that they had that wouldn't be in that net debt component, they owned a sixty acre quarry, which was the last big developable piece of real estate in all of Melbourne, Australia. So that alone was probably worth $50, $60 million. And they ended up, uh, we'll get to that in a second. They had another piece of property that was a little bit more urban that hadn't been developed in Melbourne um, called Mooney Ponds. It turned out within maybe a year or two of getting involved, they actually sold both of those assets for, I think, something like $80 million, $70 million. So compared to the enterprise value of the company and the fact that I think their cinema businesses were doing $30 million of EBITDA and a good amount of cash flow on top of that, or probably below that, but a, good, a very good amount of healthy amount of cash flow. It was interesting. And then, like in New York City, for those who are New York based, they own Cinema One Two Three, which is right across from Bloomingdale's on Third Avenue, which is just basically being run as a cinema, and they're losing money on it. But you could put eighty thousand square feet of real estate on Third Avenue in Manhattan, which as of a year ago would have been good. Now it's a little less good, but that's were there were there air rights with that? Yes. Yeah. So I think it was something like an 8,000 square foot cinema, but the air rights associated with it, let them take an 8,000 square foot lot and put 80 or 90,000 square feet. It's right above like a major subway line. Like on top yeah. of that in New York, they also had an old theater on the Northeast corner of Union Square. And, um, you know, the theater, it was actually part of the New York Film Academy. I think that was the main tenant. But I had kind of through some scuttlebutt learned that that tenant's lease was about to expire. And if that lease was about to expire, chances are the company would probably look to redevelop that property, which when I first got involved, I was looking at it more from the Australian real estate component. But over time, the New York real estate side became very, very meaningful. Because again, if you could put, there were, if you have 70,000 square feet on the Northeast corner of Union Square, for again, not a big business, you know, and then there were other assets, you know, four acres of property in downtown Wellington, New Zealand, eight acres in downtown Philadelphia. Like, they just had these huge potential asset bases that they, they could pull upon. Um, and so it, 
when they started to sell some of the assets, things started to move in a good direction. And when they announced that they were going to redevelop um, Union Square, and I actually went to the landmark hearings, the building on the northeast corner of Union Square was a uh, was landmark. It was actually landmark because it was the, built as the headquarters of Tammany Hall in New York in 1929. And uh, so I actually attended the landmark hearings in New York City and, you know, sat there as, you know, one person went up and wanted to change the sconces on his uh, outside of his coffee shop. And they wanted to, you know, basically take this historic building and turn it into a retail office space. And I remember there was someone who stood up, there were a bunch of people who showed up there and I actually brought kind of a contact who knew landmarks in New York very well to oversee the hearing with me. So maybe I could get a little, his take on it as someone who had been involved in those types of matters. I could get feedback from him. Um, I remember there was a guy who stood up and he said, look, he's like, I think New York city is going to lose tax dollars to Albany. If we don't turn this into a museum um, highlighting political corruption in the city. I mean, that was this guy's viewpoint that they were going to, and that was his reason why they shouldn't allow redevelopment. They should turn it into a city museum. Or something. Anyway, landmarks got approved. They start redeveloping these assets. Everything's kind of moving in a good direction. And I show up at an annual meeting one year. So the annual meetings are in California. And I show up there and the old man, the man who runs and controls the business does not look good. He doesn't yeah, look the guy was quite elderly, if I recall, even back in 2011, he was in his yeah. 80s. I think he maybe was like 70s or something like that. And he didn't look good. And so I'm like, you know, I don't know much about much. I'm not a doctor, but, and it turned out he wasn't well. And when, and it, so the situation had done reasonably well. And I, the position had gone up and I had taken it down a bunch. Um, and his um, kids took over the company. They had three kids, a son and two daughters. And when the business was taken over, effectively, the, there was a big question on who was going to be, like um, how they were going to treat the company. Right. So I flew out to California and met with the son. And I remember going into a meeting and I saw the sister, one of the sisters gave like an evil eye to like the brother. I was like, that was odd. I noticed it, but I kind of just moved on with, you know, my day and asked them a bunch of questions. And a couple of months later, effectively, the sisters kicked out the brother. Mm. At which point. um, Sounds like you should have been meeting with the sisters. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it was, it was one of these situations where it had worked out well. I had taken down the position a bunch and was kind of still monitoring it because the valuation, if I thought it was worth X, it maybe got to two thirds of X no. and maybe half of X. Yeah. Well, when this is going on now, there's a family dispute. Mm-hmm. Did that kick off a family dispute of some kind? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, at first you, you, you're involved with something and you're like, all right, you know, I'm going to, uh, we thought when the kids took over that they were going to treat outside shareholders a little bit better, right? Then the old man did return more value. If I'm going to sell this property in Melbourne, Australia, maybe there'll be a one-time dividend or something along those lines. And, and the share price went up, I think, both because the business was doing well and the assets were worth a good deal more, but also because I think of an expectation that things were about to change for the better. Um, but I started to get an indication when the family dispute happened that then all of a sudden you don't know exactly who's where, what's going on. And there were no real indications from Facebook about, you know, who the good actors were and who the bad actors were and kind of how to think about all this. Yeah. And so, you know, I took down the position a bunch and kind of waited it out, but that ended up becoming a, a court dispute 
So effectively, oh, go for it. In California? Yeah. Yeah. Is that where the company is domiciled or that's where like there's like a family trust that controls? Yeah. That? So actually, the, a great, great question. The company is domiciled in Nevada, um, but the um, but the family dispute was in California because of a lot of the, the different trusts and assets out there. And so, you know, I was what, effect, what effectively happened is when the old man died. So there were one point seven million voting shares and about 20 million or so non voting shares. And out of that 1.7 million voting shares, two thirds of them were controlled by the family, mm-hmm. uh, by, by, the, by the old man, Mr. Cotter. And when he actually sold, when, when he passed away, they all went effectively into a little bit more complicated than this, but they basically went into a trust for the benefit of his grandkids. So he's trying to effectively control the company from the grave right. and puts one of the sisters in charge as the trustee on the trust, and he basically has, so the trust goes for his five grandkids, but three below, three of the grandkids are the children of the son who is now kicked out of the business. One of the sisters has two kids and one of the sisters has no kids. So now you have basically a situation where the controlling block of stock that dominates this company is, is stuck in a position where, you know, you have a son who's, um, who wants basically then to sell the company and mm-hmm. the daughters want to retain their jobs. The only reason they retain their jobs is because they control the voting stock. They control the voting stock because of the trustee on the trust. So the court ultimately appoints a guardian. And after a bunch of, and you know, one thing I didn't fully appreciate, but a lot of my lawyer friends told me after a while was, look, you get wealthy people on both sides of an equation. This can take a while. (laughs) I, I flew out to California to attend hearings multiple times. And the sisters don't really know my face. So I'd be like hiding out kind of in the back, reading a book and like then the courtroom would open and I'd walk in. <laughs> it was something like that. It was kind of out of a movie. Um, Funny. You know, you're just kind of observing kind of what was going on. And then I was reading a lot of the legal filings. Again, I have a legal background, but I never practiced a day in my life. So I know enough, but you know. Um, no, so- what's going on? Is the company being harmed as a result of all this fighting or is it? Oh. I didn't, I didn't even get there. The company was being harmed probably on the margin because the company was footing a lot of the bills mm. for the sisters. So, you know, there was a component of that that was factoring into the equation. Um, but outside of that, the real issue was that the sisters had been spending a lot of money on CapEx and not necessarily generating a good return on their capital. They're not and the they, investor that their father was. Yeah. What's that? You know, exactly. Exactly. But they, I think they also didn't realize it. And I don't think the board, which was comprised largely of their father's friends, was willing to tell them. Because again, the board, those people are collecting $75,000, a year being on the board of this company. It's, it's not a bad gig. You know, I guess if you can get it, you should take it. Um, and uh, so the, the problem came, I was attending court hearings and you could see eventually what the guardian wanted, that he wanted basically the controlling block to be sold in an auction and the proceeds of that controlling block to be distributed, call it 60% for the three son, the three children of the son and 40% for the children of the daughter. And if that were to happen effectively, if you were gonna sell in an auction, the controlling block of stock, you would get a huge re-rating in the non-voting shares compared to the voting shares because there's no reason that their economic interest is effectively the same. Right. Right. And so, you know, my view on it, if the voting shares were, let's say, trading at, 
you know, two X and the non-voting or trading at X, I think the whole thing is probably worth three X, right. right? And you're like, you're watching this kind of happen. And as you're watching the, the court developments, you're like, this is probably going to break in the right direction. And, you know, I've already done, you know, 65 pages of write-ups since 2011, updating the different assets and following everything. You're, you're behaviorally stuck, but the value's there. Um, I did make a scene actually at their, not a scene, because that's not my nature, but it was the first time I ever stood up at an annual meeting. And, um, you know, we collaborate on stuff, right? But I'm never the one to go on the, on the conference calls. We always kind of defer that to Gary, right? Uh, I mean, we're, we're involved in one now where I go on the conference calls and give people a hard time. And then uh, <laughs> then you have a call with them behind the scenes and you're much nicer. Uh, we did fly out to one meeting together. And I think uh, I think that went OK, even though the, that did not work out as an investment. So <laughs> uh, I, I got to see a good friend out in San Francisco. So if there was any plus out of that, I guess that was uh, that was part of it. Yeah. So in, in dealing with this whole situation, um, so the shares had gone up a bunch, but then they started to come down, I think, as people didn't understand what was going on on the legal front, right? Things were getting stressed, stretched out. The company was issuing press releases that indicated that the court developments were moving in one direction, when in reality, they were kind of moving in another direction. Just the timeline was kind of uncertain. Right. And um, so I, starting at some point last year, where I thought, let's say something was worth three X and it would come down from maybe, I don't know, one and a half X to one X. I started to add back into my position a little bit on this company. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, the company basically is cinema assets and kind of non-cash flowing for the most part, they have some cash flowing real estate, but largely non-cash flowing real estate assets. Right. Um, and, you know, so I added a little bit in like November, December, and then what was kind of interesting and bad, I was on a totally different position. Uh, I was collaborating with a friend who runs a family office out of Chicago. This goes to about January of this year. And I'm on a call with, I'm discussing basically the meat business with him, basically grains and proteins and stuff like that. And he says to me, he's like, by the way, he's like, my sister's a really well-known virologist. And she's telling me this thing in China is like a big deal. Like, and he starts explaining on the phone why it's a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, all right, interesting. I call up my wife and I ask her to go buy a bunch of masks at CVS. And she's like, why are you having me get masks? It's like early January. Like, it's not that cold out, right? You know, whatever. And, you know, I had gotten that piece of information, but I think some of my behavioral biases and what I thought the long-term value was. So I started to look at, at this company, Reading International, say, all right, let's say this is a real problem. And let's say their cinemas had to be closed down for three months or six months or even a year. What do I think their cash burn is? So wait, you got this briefing that everybody in the Trump administration got uh, in, in January? Just, it, yeah, I mean, look, I didn't do much with it, right? I mean, I, as talking about kind of mistakes and position sizing, my largest position at the time was, uh, was Air Canada, mm -hmm. which I had been involved in a company um, called AMIA, which basically had a loyalty plan that was tied to Air Canada. Sorry for the digress. I think we'll full circle it in a minute. <laughs> I was Before we full circle, are you still involved in Air Canada or AMIA? Um, no, not involved with either. Okay. Yeah. Reading though you are. No, no, no I'm not. So a uh, Reading, I still am. Yes. In a very limited way. Um, so on the, um, so AMIA was basically a, uh, a loyalty plan. So if you think about it, you get a credit card and you get points, et cetera. And their primary counterparty was Air Canada. So most, it was basically Canadian linked. And effectively, you know, okay. if I was using, I think it was an American Express card or whatever, in, um, or TD card or Bank of Nova Scotia, whatever it was, 
you know, I would get points. They would collect the points. They had all this float from the points. They get the money and eventually they had to pay it out. But Air Canada announced that they weren't going to be renewing the agreement. And basically the shares, which I didn't own at the time, I think went down by like 90%. And that's when some of my friends kind of mentioned to me and got involved because they said they thought that the guy who was running Air Canada at the time, uh, the CEO was a former distressed bankruptcy guy. And he thought they were basically knocking the legs out of this company before they go back and buy them out because airlines had really benefited a lot from acquiring the loyalty plans associated with them. So my friends kind of thought all along, this is kind of a play to get those points effectively and to get the plan on the cheap. And it turned out that was the case. And after they got the plan, I actually started to buy Air Canada because I didn't think that Air Canada shareholders ultimately recognized the value that the loyalty plan would have for them. So I transitioned from EMEA over to Air Canada. Things were working out fine, but to get to the point about you buy into something, you spend a lot of time doing work on it. It's your biggest position you find out this piece of information about, you know, COVID and the risks associated with, and, you know, you don't really know. I don't think people really understood the implications, but I decided yeah. at some point I sold 40% of my position, but I held on to the other 60% because they took my costs out effectively and roll, roll, basically rode the rest of it effectively down. Um, didn't sell at the, at the total bottom, but, you know, I think what was a very nice profit turned into nothing effectively because of, I think some of the biases associated with coming into that point in time with a lot of cash and not knowing what I was going to do with the cash, having a big write-up where you're kind of already kind of predisposed to liking a business in the long term. And so that was kind of part of it, but the same issue kind of played in with Reddit, right? So you kind of have to realize that this could have an impact on cinema. I didn't think about the real estate side so much. And as the shares started going down, I just started adding a little more, adding a little bit more. Um, and it's hard, right? I mean, like, I wouldn't, res- you know, Annie Duke has this concept called resulting where, like, you know, the outcome of a play and then you project onto that what you, you know, what you should have done. I mean, like, I don't know if in January there was anybody that really saw like a global shutdown coming, right? Probably not. But in retrospect, it's always easy to blame yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and to be your own. Uh, We're big into self-flagellation here. Or what is, uh, did I get that right? No, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Good term. It's a good term. So it's going down. You're adding some position on the way down. And then then what? So, I mean, my view on it, I had kind of like a like a macro thesis, effectively, which I can't get into here because I still would, um, it still may at some point come into play. So I'm going to kind of keep it out. But the idea, there was a potential way that I thought um, the right type of fund private equity firm could get control of the company get that controlling block of stock by doing certain things, which then would create all this potential value. Right. right? And so I started to speak to all my, like a bunch of my different contacts in the private equity world and the hedge fund world and different things, trying to get people. Cause I'm like, this seems so obvious to me. I I don't want to get too much in the weeds on it, but I'm looking at this and the shares are trading, call it at, at four. And I think it could be worth multiples and it all could be realized potentially in a couple of months And I'm like, this is just so obvious for people to put this trade on, at least to me, it felt obvious, right? I don't have the type of structure to do it, but, you know, I understand what's going on legally. I know the value of these assets, et cetera, et cetera. I was having a variety of conversations with different people. And ultimately, one by one, what you started to realize is everyone had their own reason why they didn't want to do it. 
virtually everyone came back to me and said, we get the value, we get the thesis, this all makes sense to us, but it's not right for us. The company has assets in Australia and New Zealand. They have some assets that are cash flowing on the real estate side and some that are not. They have assets in the US, all over the US. Some are cash flow producing, some aren't. You have a cinema business, you have a real estate business. In certain cases, your cinema is actually one of the anchor tenants at one of your real estate properties. Right. And I think when you looked at it and the company itself at some point has a market cap of $100 million. So if you go to a big player, they want to buy the whole thing, but they don't want to get into some sort of, you know, nitpicky trade effectively to try to extract the value there, which is not something they're going to do. You get to a smaller player, they're worried about actually getting control of the business because if they get control of the business, then they have to manage a company, you know, and, and, and it became each person that I spoke with, you kind of realized, and, and you know, they're, you're having a series of conversations. You're spending a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to get this over the hurdle because you know you have let's call it a couple percent position you think you can make multiples on this in a short period of time like those are not the types of opportunities that present themselves often mm-hmm. you know we live in a world that has a lot of uncertainties and a lot of questions but you feel like when you know something you got to go for it but in the meanwhile on the other side you see a company that's draining cash flow every month right you don't know if they're going to trip covenants you don't know even what the cinema business might look like you know, a year from now, three years from now, just in terms of like the Netflix challenges and streaming and what have you. And so you're kind of looking at it from all these angles and you have these kind of pressures. Right. You see that you can implement some sort of a, a control change, but at the end of the day, if you can't control it, you know, and so you could put in your time and your energy. And I think part of the reason I didn't give up earlier was I probably had a, there was the opportunity set, which was very clear, but I felt like I knew it better than just about anyone, which can be both a curse and a blessing, right? It's almost like you'd have to have the money. You'd have to go find the money to do this yourself in order to make yes. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I didn't appreciate it. I ended up on a call with one of the largest kind of developers of real estate. And I think he was the head of development for them. He was nice enough to do a call introduced by a friend who runs a huge pension um, and the guy did a call with me and he was great. And what I appreciate about his call is he was utterly transparent. Mm-hmm. He's like, look, he's like, it's going to be hard to find someone who wants to do this. And he's like, we deal with a lot of complicated situations just because there are all these different pieces involved. So you really have to find the right party, the right player. And he's like, I know a lot of players, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. Who'd want to do this? He's like, I can give you a list of dozens of people who would buy the company tomorrow if it was for sale. But I, and and so it was that it was that kind of tricky function of. Um, what did you ultimately do with the position? Oh, um, you know, <laughs> so I ended up taking it down a good amount. Um, the market, the market took it down some, so that was quite painful. Um, took it down a lot actually, um, and then I took it down some, and you know, there's. The behavioral side of you is when you can't handle it anymore is probably the time you need to double down in terms of your position size. Um, And I remember my friend who initially introduced this to me, he said, by the time you're giving up or kind of selling, he's like, it's probably the right time to buy just because that emotional pain gets so big. But what I also realized, and I think this is a big, this was a big learning lesson for me. And I've been doing this for 20 years, but I've never had an investment, um, that was emotionally wearing on me so much. 
it was not only sucking up a lot of my time and my energy and distracting me from other potential opportunities, but it was also having like literally a physical impact on my body um, to the point where I was feeling just very emotional, very stressed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and Gary and, and Eric, we've talked about this a lot, right? When you're looking after someone else's savings, like if you're, if you're of the right type of character and mindset, you, you bring it home with you anyway. Mm -hmm. right? you, at night, something's not going well and, and you don't sleep as well as you might otherwise because you feel bad about X or you don't understand why something's not going in the direction you want it to go. Nope. Um, and in this case, it was just so much painful because I, I think for me personally, because I was putting in so much additional time, I saw like, I literally saw like the goal line you know, or I saw like the, the ticker tape at the end of like a race yeah. and I just couldn't get from, you know, the, the five yard line to, sorry for all the football, all the sports metaphors. I couldn't get from the five yard line into the end zone. Yeah. And once I kind of came to the mindset, like this is going to be extra hard for me to find someone. My initial thought was so many people are going to want to do this. And I have a lot of contacts. I'll find the right party who's going to want to move forward with this because it just eminently makes so much sense. Right. And then after a while, I think I just realized you know, maybe I can't, maybe there isn't. And, you know, I have to be careful about losing any more money in this situation. You know, yeah. there comes a point in time you can only lose so much in something. Um, I mean, the three, the three hardest words in investing, I think, are, are I was wrong. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I've had to learn how to say that fast and uh, repeatedly uh, over, over the years. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Yeah. So. <laughs> but, it's, but it's funny you mentioned like the physical toll because I find that oftentimes, like, I know that I need to be buying something when I feel it physically trying to enter the trade. Um, but then I also know that the distraction element that you mentioned, and I don't know if you've read any of these books, but I, I, I'm not a trader, but I enjoy them. But have you ever read the um, Market Wizard series of books by Jack Schwager? Schwager, Schwager. Uh, he's written like five of them, and there's a new one that he's out with um, that, I'm, that I bought on tape. I'm kind of listening to, but to like a T, all of these traders basically say the same thing. It's like, I, I cut my losses to clear my mind because my mind space is just so valuable. And it's it's one of uh, like, that's always one of my takeaways on, on one of these. Well, we had a situation this morning where we just, we quickly put on a really, really, really small position just personally because we thought something was going to happen. You learn over the next couple of days, it's not going to happen. And so we woke up this morning I'm looking at the trades, the bid fell out. I was like, Gary, what do you want to do? Do you just want to blow out of it? Do you want to try and you know manage it a little bit and you know, get out a piece at a time? It's like just it's inconsequential. I just don't want to think about it. Just get it out. Whatever price we get, get it out. Get it out. We'll make it up on the next one. Right. And just be done with it. We just can't. Do you guys like selling more than buying? Or you like buying more than selling? Are you totally indifferent? I might go both ways. I'm not really sure. I I like the waiting and the following and like, I, I like the middle part more than, than the buying or I find the buying to be hard. I never really buy as well as I think I could. I never really sell as well as I think I could. So like, I'm always, there's always some like a bit of regret on both sides of the trade for me. Like I, oh, I like, I, I always say to Eric, you get better, you get way better prices than I get because you're just better at like, you're controlling that element of yourself. But like, I sort of like this, the things that we get involved with, they're sort of evolving stories. And so I sort of like the, the 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 way store following stories as they play out and hopefully being proven right and if i'm wrong you know hopefully we can we can identify that and get out but yeah. um it's not the buying or the selling for me it's always because I, I always think that there's going to be it's I, I know that it's going to be perfectly imperfect and 
you know, uh, but we make the, we make the money in the waiting for the most part. So that's the yeah. part I enjoy. Yeah. It goes back to the Berkshire Hathaway, uh, you know, story effectively, but Eric and I joke, there's this one company that we own and every time we sell it, it's always been, it's, we sell some, it's always been the wrong, wrong decision. decision, but it's like, it, it winds up it, like if, this summer, it would have been an irresponsible percentage of our of our net worth. And quite frankly, like it got to prices that we had a really hard time justifying under any scenario. So we started to take some down and, um, you know, we don't. The market fit. told us that it could go higher. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but to be fair, like we found other things to do with the money and, and yeah. those have been just fine. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, we don't beat ourselves up too much about it, but it's, it, it, it's the same point that you're bringing up where it's sort of like, you know, there was never a good time to sell Berkshire. Well, it sort of feels like with certain things, there's, it, certain things are just sort of like that, right? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you kind of like take a step back and also the idea of you guys saying you like kind of like the long ride. Are there variables within businesses that you try to avoid so that you don't feel like either emotionally or one way or another, you can't see it through your thesis, whether it's leverage or cyclicality or um, capital intensity of the business? Is there anything that you find that you tend to avoid for those reasons? Um, depends what we're in it for. I think we've, we've learned to just better define what we're in something for. So if we've got something with leverage and some cyclicality, we've just got to recognize that that needs a much shorter leash than something where it's sort of an open-ended growth runway and there's all these levers to pull and there's going to be periods of time where maybe it's 20%, you know, if we did it, if we did a intrinsic value calculation, it's 20% overvalued, but we think it's growing 20% 20% a year and we don't have anything else that we, we can find that we would buy, you know, that, that, that we could recycle that capital with that we know as well and like as much, because if you know something and you like something, you got to get to that point with something else. And yeah, I mean, like that's possible, but it's sort of for us, the hard, I, what are the hard no's for us? At this I mean, point? the hard stuff. I think terrible business is a hard no uh, in a lot of, in a lot yeah. of instances. I mean, like, commodity driven businesses things things where they're getting worse every day so we did a we did a podcast early on where we didn't say we were talking about kodak but we were talking about kodak and every every day that we owned kodak was worse than the day before it <laughs> yes. just was like um so we tried like, the situation where you guys got really lucky like better lucky than good on that one yeah check really- out the podcast yeah we got really really lucky we got really lucky i mean we got bailed out of they it. turned they came out one day and said they were doing something in crypto this was two years before they said they were doing something in, uh, with COVID. And uh, the same thing happened. They, they, they struck pay dirt twice and the COVID one was even crazier than the crypto one. Yeah. So, I, you know what, you just connected that, right? Cause they had that whole thing earlier this year on the COVID yeah. thing and I forgot about the, so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean for us, it's like the, the business is really crap, but generally speaking for us, we want things to be, we need to see, we need to see what the path forward to actually making money really is. And, you and, and stuff that we plan on owning a long time. It's, just, it's, it's that we hope that each day that we wake up that their, their business is a little bit better than the day before rather than worse. Uh, rather than worse. And it's those machines that are creating value while you're sleeping. Yeah. And we've done other things where, where like, you know, there's a valuation gap and there's something to close the gap, but like, you know, you got to really be careful around that one. Like it, it, we, there's all kinds of different ways that you can, you can sort of make money and skin a cat in this business. I think that what, what's most important at least from our perspective, is had to only try to do it in ways that fit with our personality. So like what you're doing totally fits with your personality. For us to try to do what you're doing and it's entirely probably wouldn't fit with our no. personality. And, and so there's some overlap between our personalities where we can collaborate on things, but like 
the 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 overlap isn't hundred percent. It's it's you know fifty percent or something. You know where where there's there's we're gonna draw a Venn diagram, which is my favorite kind of diagram to draw. <laughs> you know the overlap area is you know. Not an architect, but are there any other types of diagrams besides Venn diagrams? I can't even name one. Uh, I don't know. I only know Venn. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> all right. Um, this anyway, has been a lot of fun. Yeah, Eric. Where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, find out more about me. Uh, well, my company is Abe Capital Management. So the website is www.abecm.com. And uh, yeah, you can find out a little bit about me on there. Your contact information is on the site? Yeah, should be on the site. Yeah. I love it. it. should be on the site. I don't really yeah, know. I don't, I don't have that much of like a public <laughs> persona. I'm not really on that. I don't. Your updated your website was. A year or two ago, I think something like Obama, that. Obama administration, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe even Clinton or Bush, but yeah, I, I think probably Obama administration. Uh, that's, so that's too funny. All right, uh, you want to land our plane? Yep. E, thank you so much for coming out. We really appreciate it. It's always good, good chatting with you. Um, Total pleasure on my end. Yeah. Uh, for anyone, uh, remember we're available anywhere podcasts are available. You can check us out at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. Check us out at snn.network. Check us out on the SNN YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash snnwire. Gary, thanks for dressing up today. E, great to see you. Um, and we'll talk to you all soon. All right. Sounds Thank good. You, Thank you, guys. Appreciate thanks. it. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.